Let's talk about the future of news. I want you all to know that we are fighting the fake news. The state of journalism today. Telling both sides of a, of a controversial story. I think you must be unbiased. It's uh, honesty, fairness, uh, truth. That is our job. That is our job. That is our job. Right. Uh, welcome once again to the Arrow Man in Stockholm podcast. My name is Philip O'Connor, but the chances are, if you're listening to this, you probably knew that already. Now, over 30 years ago, I met the man you're going to hear from in this episode on the corner of Georgia Street and Dame Street in Dublin, the morning after he signed his first major label record deal as a teenager. His band's first album is one of the greatest Irish debuts of all time, and the band's success in Asia became the very epitome of being big in Japan. Over 30 years later, I found myself in Tokyo on the day the, the same band's latest album dropped. The intervening years have been a tale of songwriting success, but perhaps not in the way that we would have thought on that Dublin morning three decades ago. For one thing, most of that time for both of us has been spent outside of Ireland. Songwriter and musician Craig Walker, what's it like to be back with Power of Dreams, my friend? Hi, Philip. Great to see you. Um... Yeah, it's amazing. I mean, it, 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 you know, the, the best part of it was that it was so unexpected for me. Yeah. Like we could, like the album's finished, it's out, people are loving it, it's great, but like it's only now that I'm going, wow, we did that, you know? Because um, it, it really wasn't on the agenda before, you know, Keith was living in uh, Arizona for a long time, Ian is based in London, we're all, I'm in Berlin, so, you know, it, it just it just never seemed like it was ever going to be possible to do it. I often thought about it, and I, and, and some of the songs on Outlander, uh, the new album, I put to one side over the years as my job as a songwriter. You know, I'd be, I'd go, God, that's a really good Power Dream song. If only we were we were active still. Um, and then the pandemic hit, and I was working on my album, my new project, Craig Walker in the Cold, which single we released our first single a few uh, about a month ago uh, called Get Arrested. Check it out. Um, and we were we were coming to we were in the middle of that album, me and the producer of Auslander, Eric Alcock, who's my partner in, in Craig Walker in the Cold. Uh, and it got to about March, it was just before Paddy's Day actually in 2019. And the pandemic was was we could feel it outside the door of the studio approaching and and kind of you know seeping under the floorboards and 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 we pushed, we did as long as we could, and then it got to about I think the just the day before Paddy's Day, I think 16th or 15th, uh, where we said, right, we, we can't we can't do this anymore. It's getting too risky. You know, the whole city had shut down by this point. Um, and so we, we we drew a line under and we said, right, well, let's go home. And I, I took my gear home and my recording equipment. And we both spent a week at home kind of twiddling our thumbs going, like, we can't finish the cold record. So I called Eric up and I said, I'm bored. And uh, I said, you know, I'd like to honour the... It was the 30th anniversary coming up in 2020 of Immigrants, our first album. So the initial plan was, I said to him, how about we do like an EP of, we'll, we'll get the guys on board and we'll record an acoustic EP of the tra some of the tracks from the album. And he said, yeah, that sounds like a good idea. And then I thought about it and I said, well, maybe maybe some new songs wouldn't be a bad idea. I could throw a couple of new songs. And then eventually it was, well, why, do, why don't we do an album? You know, if, like if everybody's available. Uh, which they were, because everybody in the world was available during that period, and um, and it was it just it was just the it was the it, it just all transpired and all worked out perfectly. Contacted Keith and Ian, they were both like, yeah, well up for it. And then Eric said he'd produce it, and I would I would, uh, and then we contacted Ali Statton, who had mixed 
the last Power of Dreams album. He was he was a well, he was assistant engineer. He cut his tea on that album, mm. which was produced by an Irish producer called Ingmar Kiang, who's worked with Damien Dempsey and other 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 people uh, in London. And Ali 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 was the assistant engineer on that album. So. I called him up. I've been in touch with him. Ali's gone on to have this glitter and career. He's with Madonna. He's he's he's, in, he's out in America at the moment with Snow Patrol. Um, so I called him up and he said, "Yeah, I'd love to do it." So that was it. Everybody was on board, and uh, and it was suddenly possible. So I would record at home, like we're recording now. I'd I'd, I'd record to click track the songs, uh, send them to the producer Eric here in Berlin, and he would then work up a kind of template for because the guitars and drummer want different as you know they want different things in the in on, on the on the guide track so he he did some mock-ups for them sent them off and then we didn't know what was going to happen at all you know so so keith did his drums uh, on the first couple of tracks sent them back ian did the same and then eric uh put it all together and he called me up and he said it's got to work and i was like really he said yeah 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 he said it's amazing he said i he says, when I put put the whole thing together, I brought all the parts in, it was suddenly like a pair of dreams record. It was amazing. You know, like it was just a band. It sounded like a band immediately, which is why we didn't go over the top on. Uh, so we knew it was going to work then, which was the, the biggest hurdle. Because mm-hmm. um, we didn't know, you know, I mean, when you, like the idea of bringing disparate parts from people that aren't playing together it could go very wrong, you know what I mean? Like, because like, there's no there's no intuitiveness going on. And as you know, in the studio, the drummers are always looking at the bass player. Yep. So there was none of that ever. And I'm, I, we've never, ne- I've never done a record like that before. I recorded all the vocals at home, which is completely new. You know, I'd usually demo vocals at home and then go into the proper studio and record it then, you know? And so there was none of that, but it was quite liberating in a way. We knew what, what the limitations were. We knew it sounded good, and then uh, and then Eric said to me, as he was mixing, as he, as he was working on the production of the first couple of tracks, he said, you know, I've tried stuff, I've put keyboards on it, I've put some, you know, I've made it, put more, more modern stuff on it, and he said it just, you know, it just takes away from the core of the band. Mm. Uh, and it was him. It was funny, you know, like he, he he didn't even know the band before we before we started working on it. He's like twelve years younger than me and the, and the guys in the band, so. And he's from Canada, so he, you know, he'd no reference to the band, and and he was insistent. He said, "I've gone back and listened to the to the albums. I love them." Uh, he said, "The band still, the band is on really good form." He said, "So, you know, let's keep it simple," uh, which we did. Ali did add some soundscape stuff to it and did a fantastic job in the mix. Uh, he added, you know, underneath there's there's layered stuff, but there was no bells and whistles on the record. It yeah. was really just my voice, Ian's guitars. Keith's drums and Eric Eric played bass on the on the record because he's a great bass player as well. Because Mick, unfortunately, Mick Lennox unfortunately couldn't couldn't join us for the record yeah. because at that point there was talk of uh, those car park gigs were supposed to be happening. Mick's a promoter in Ireland, yeah. successful promoter in Ireland. He's always busy with that. Um, and at that time he was up to his neck with this this tour of car, uh, Gavin James. I think was going to be doing it and. You, you remember them it felt like that was the way out but of course it didn't it didn't work out so so but Eric filled in and and, and we just got on a flow then once we had the first one mixed Ali sent it back we were like I was I was so surprised that it was still there that the magic was still there 
But that was the amazing thing. Is like after thirty years, because like I said, I was in Tokyo one day, and I think I actually messaged you because we were only allowed out for like fifteen minutes. So I walked yeah. to the supermarket and back, and I listened to the first three tracks of it. And by the time I got to the third track, which I think is called "Give Love a Chance," yeah. and it was just you know, it was like thirty years ago on that street. It's yeah, it's yeah. the same band. It's the same the same vibe. It's not you know. Yeah. Obviously, you've come a long way since then, but it was undeniably a Power of Dreams song. But this thing of, you know, Keith Walker, your younger brother, the drummer in the band, you know, this is a young man with plenty of opinions about songwriting, the way things are done. How did that work with, with you know, the dynamic between you and Eric and Keith? When you were sending stuff to him in Arizona and you're saying, Keith, you got to play it this way. How much freedom did he have to be himself? Because he is a tremendous musician in his own right. Fantastic drummer. I mean, we we, we gave him a lot of freedom, actually. I mean, there was, there was kind of, it was pretty rough. I mean, the, the basic structure of the songs, I had nailed, which was what made it all a lot easier. So I had the verse, the chorus, the middle eight, all of that. Uh, but that was it. I didn't. I, I hadn't nailed down what what the rhythm should be. And and Eric gave just just kind of guidelines to because Eric's a drummer as well. So him and Keith had a lot of communication. So when he when when he was going into the studio in Arizona, and he was I don't know whether you heard this, but when he was recording the drum tracks. The Black Lives Matter riots were happening in Arizona. Mm. So he's calling me as he's driving through. Uh, he said, I'm fucking going through a riot here. It's like this, like, you know, petrol bombs all over the sea. Uh, so in the middle of a pandemic, in in a Black Lives in a proper full-scale riot, he went in and recorded the drums. Um, and there was, it was, as Eric said to me, after we finished the album, he said, you know, keep brought a lot to the record. You know, mm. he said... A lot of these, a lot of the rhythms, he said, I never would have imagined would walk. But he said, when I put it together with Ian's guitar and your my my acoustic and the vocals, it totally worked. Um, and I was really impressed, you know, because Keith's he's a brilliant drummer. The thing with Keith is like when he was when, when when we started, as you know, he was he was the one that everybody would be talking about. Mm. We we tour with big bands like you know the Pixies and whoever, and it was always they'd burst into the dressing room after gigs, always, and be like. Where's the drummer? <laughs> Who is this kid? kid? Where's that kid? And they'd be like, "Fucking hell, you're some fucking drummer." And um, and yeah, great, great drummer. Uh, I think he should have continued playing drums at a, at a more serious level, in my opinion. You know, because I think he's definitely got the chops for it. Um, but having said that, I'm absolutely proud of his playing on this record. I think he's really played out of his skin and. Yeah. Uh, and, and 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 it's got a really good feel and touch to it and and quite quite intricate on some of the stuff it's like you know it's not it's not he could have just done four to the floor but he didn't you know yeah. and, and that's what makes him a great drummer well it's amazing that so the development that's happened because like you say he hasn't really played a whole lot of drums in the intervening no. years but let's go back to that time keith when the, when the band or sorry craig when the band actually started right because I, how old was Keith when you signed your first major label? There was he sixteen, even. Yeah, he was sixteen. So our parents had to come over to sign the deal. They yeah. came over to London, and Mick was seventeen, and I think I was just eighteen. I just turned eighteen. Yeah, because so we were I could sign, but the, the other guys couldn't. So they had to get their parents to come over. So parents yeah. came over to London, and, and and they signed the deal. Yeah, it's super young, you know, and it's it's insane. I mean, I. I I think I mentioned this in an interview recently, you know, the idea of um, them allowing, like these days, I wouldn't, if, if, if you sign a deal, like in that situation where young guys are signed, signed to a record deal, label, major label in the UK, there's no way that they would let you write your own songs. Like, And they let us do it. They just said, right, you've got your songs, in you go, lads. Um, and, you know, we never even met the producer until 
I was I was re- I was listening to a podcast by uh, John Lecky, you know the producer John Lecky, and yep. he's a fantastic producer, and he was talking about like in the eighties and nineties where there was no there was no such thing as meetings. You know, you didn't meet. You know, meetings has become this thing in the in the in the t- it's since the internet really, isn't it? Like everything's a lot more convenient. But he he was saying, you know, he would often just meet a band for the first time on the first day of the recording because yeah. the label would just call up and go, "You're producing the record, great." And there was no, there was no, let's meet and see if we get on. Or like, I was the same for us when I, the day that we record the first day of recording the album in London at Master Rock Studios in Kilbourne was the first day I met the producer of the record and. Uh, and thankfully, he was brilliant. You know, he he he'd been in a band himself. He was in Gentle Giants, who were like prog band, mm-hmm. and he was in a band with two brothers. So he understood the dynamic of, of brothers in a band and stuff, which which really helped. But going back to that, he let us get on with it. You know, he didn't change any of the arrangements. No. Like he he just said, "Play your live set, go out there and play the songs," and and we did. And uh, and I think that's why it still stands up as a good record. You know that. It's very pure. It's it it is what we were at that at that point in time. You know, there's an incredible energy and a freshness to it uh, from that time in the late 1980s, early 90s Dublin. You know, but like you say, nowadays you'd be considered absolutely mad if you were to let a bunch of young lads just run free like that. But where did the the desire to play music come from? Because I can't remember. Was the first record you brought was at the Jam? I can't remember. I remember you telling me this at one point that you bought something and that was what changed it. But you know, what made you pick up a guitar in the first place, Craig? I think it well for me it started in primary school uh with the recorder as it always started. everything starts with the, the rock and roll instrument to beat them all <laughs> that was the first instrument i had and the first time that my mu- my my teacher in school said you've got a talent for music and i was like do i oh wow um, and and from that i found it quite easy i could find my way around it and i could i could find a tune quite easily um that was the first indication that i you know and i loved music you know my, my brother was five years old is, is five years older than me and really good taste in music so i had this older brother who was buying vinyl all the time he was into great music i mean i was listening to the cure when i was like 10 you know like early cure because he was he was 15 and he was mad into the cure and, and joy division and new order and factory records and you know this amazing uh, kind of palette of music that that was available to me um so from that i i knew i had a massive love for music and then uh, and then i realized i could play the recorder quite easily and you know my and then and then i i i, I thought i've got to i've got to learn the guitar the only way and that would have been i was 10 i think or 11 and my parents said yeah you can learn the guitar but you got to learn it properly and i said yeah no problem so i did three years of classical training um Locally, you know, like twice a week with a guy in Ratfarnham who was close to where I was living and, and I went down there and, and, and did the classical thing. He taught me how to read music um, and gave me a really great basis in, in, in music, actually. So by the time when I was 13, I got my first electric guitar and then everything changed. And Keith got that same Christmas. So Keith would have been 11. He got his first drum kit and, um, and we were sharing a bedroom in Walkerstown, you know. So he had his drum kit set up, and I had my little amp and guitar, and that and that was the beginning, really. We started making music straight away in the bedroom, and uh, it was like, right, we now we got to make a band. I think after about six months, we were like, right, we need a bass player, and and a drummer, or no, it's a bass player and, and another guitar player, and it was like that thing of you know, you'd find a mate who 
you'd convinced was going to be the bass player. He'd never play, never played the guitar in his life. And a mate of ours did that. There he was. He he got a bass, and um, and that was that. Then we were off and running, you know. That's so we, uh, but it was. Yeah, I was, I was going to ask you about the songwriting because like when when did that start when did you decide that okay i'm you know in the beginning i think you used to play a cover a break on through by the doors i don't know at what stage you used to play that but it was reasonably early on but other than that it was all original material and it was different there wasn't anybody else playing songs like you were playing absolutely i mean for me like it for me it was always like even learning the guitar i had this real desire to make music uh and to be creative with it um i think I started writing songs around th- at 13 once I got the electric guitar because then I realized, you know, you could just play a chord and it sounds great. And, mm. you know, I could find a melody over the top of one chord because uh, classical is all that I didn't even know. I, I, I was never shown chords. It was always picking and very classical and, 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 and that kind of world. Uh, but as soon as I picked up the electric guitar, turn it into an amp, hit a chord. It's like, oh, my God, that's it. That's, that, mm. that, that's what that's what I've been waiting for. So I start writing straight away, and uh, and you know for me that's always I've always been into songwriting. It's always been the thing that fascinated me. I was always interested in who who wrote the songs. You know, like looking at my parents, like Motown records as a as a as a six year old. Even then, I'd be like, who's the writer? You know, yeah. um, that was the bit that always always interested me. And then and then bands like the Smiths, you know, with Morrissey and Marr. Um, Again, it was always about. I was interested in the writers. It wasn't the pop star or the or you know the the glitz and the glamour, which was all great, of course. But it was always about the writing and how do they write that and where how do they come up with that. Um, so that was it. I was off and running as soon as I could. As soon as I got an electric guitar, I started writing songs. Some terrible ones for sure, um, but you know you keep you keep doing it and you keep doing it and and and, and eventually. Eventually, something something clicks. We we used to rehearse every Saturday night uh, in the first bass players. Uh, his parents had a, a a big garage that they they used to teach taekwondo in, and they would let us rehearse there every Saturday night. and And that was really the formation. You know, I'd I'd spend the week writing songs uh, when I wasn't doing homework, and bring them in on the Saturday, and we'd and we'd we'd start doing it and. And quite quickly, we it was like we've got ten songs, uh, ten original, a couple of covers like "Break on True," as you said. I think we even did some YouTube covers back then. I think we probably did "I Will Follow." Anything that was like two chords mm. was in some pist- pistols. We did some Clash, but really, I wasn't that interested in covers. You know, we 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 do it just to fill the set if we were if we were, or or just to give people something familiar. Um, and then we start playing. Sp- places in the area like our first gig was in a scout's den in uh lime Killam, uh lime Killam, just off lime Killam, lime Killam avenue it was like a, it was a, a scout's den disco like six o'clock disco on a, on a saturday night um and that yeah that was that was life-changing you know it's like i love this <laughs> i love i love immediate reaction you know people hearing your songs and in fact, I didn't, I, you know, I never intended to be the singer. I think even that gig, I don't think I was even singing. I think I, my thing was I wanted to be Pete Townsend or Johnny Marr, just, you know, standing there being cool and writing the songs, um, but couldn't find a singer. And back then, nobody wanted to be a singer. You know, for some reason, it was like, I don't know, it was, it was really difficult. We went through loads of feedback. I think every person who had a, could hold a note in the area where we were living tried out for the band. And um, and it just eventually was like you know what I'll do it 
I'll do the singing. And um, and that's how we brought Robbie in, Robbie Callum, R.O.P. Of course, uh, like last year, Robbie died. Um, but it was, yeah. So the, I kind of fell into being the being the lead singer, you know. And I, you know, it wasn't any. I was never I was never motivated by by being a singer. It was always about the songwriting. Um, one of the so. things that was interesting about the songwriting, Craig, was that you were sort of reflecting our experiences as as teenagers growing up in Dublin, right? And that idea, a sense of place, a sense of community. I think the original EP that came out in Satanta was called A Little Piece of God. We were the ones who were, you know, probably the first generation to sort of try to, you know, emancipate ourselves from that. Kind of, and you put words on that and you put those words onto records. Um, how important was that to you to write about things that you knew, to write about, you know, relationships that you had and, and that kind of thing? Was that a conscious thing on your part? Absolutely. I mean, it's it, it was my way of expressing myself, you know, and and, and, and for me, that writing's always been about that. It was it, I found a way to get what was going on in my head out. And and, and it's great. It's a, it's a great feeling. You're right. I think our generation was the force that was beginning to question that, you know, this this institution, Catholic Church, wasn't all that it was cracked up to be. You know, it, the, the cracks were beginning to show. Uh, it was, I think we all knew, we'd all heard the rumours and I think Sinead O'Connor had been on, was that 85, 86? Saturday Night Live. Yeah, that was a little bit later. I don't, was that the 90? I can't remember. It just seems like all that time. We're, we're getting old now as well. So everything seems like years ago, you know, but it was around that time that these things, there was talk about the King Cora boys home in Belfast and, and what was going on in some of these places. The last of the Magdalene laundries up on Grace Park Road near where we lived there, that closed in 96. So we were aware of all this coming to an end, you know, but at that stage we were what, 26, 27 yeah. by that time. But it was, you know, it was a sort of an open secret at that time, you know, when we were 15, 16, 17. For sure. People knew. And uh, I remember like Sinead O'Connor's thing and like just thinking, well, you know, this is the beginning of, of things opening up. Mm. Um, so there was a lot to talk about. You know, we grew up in a, in a period as well in Ireland. People people tend to forget this where there was really little opportunity, you know. I mean, I, I was sit, you'd sit with a careers officer if you, if, if, if you had one. And uh, he'd say, "I want to be a musician," and he'd say, "Well, what, what's what, what's your proper job? I want to be." You know, there was no, it wasn't even on the table that you could go into the arts. You know, and I, I, I just so there was a lot to talk about. There was a lot not to be angry about, but just to comment on. And you know, particularly with the religious thing, um, I'm really happy that that was the first single. You know, the first thing was that I. I was trying to say a lot. I didn't have the I didn't have the tools at that point to get across what I was trying to say. But but I think the feeling is in it, you know, this feeling of um, t just. I I think I, by the age of fifteen, sixteen, I had a real problem with the the way that the church was like really, you know, uh, ruling with a with an iron iron fist, you know, mm. and, uh, and 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 we saw it. Like the priests were elevated to like godlike status. Um, and in your area, like the, you know, in my area, the, the, the parish priest would just turn up unannounced in your house. You know, he would just knock on the door and walk straight in. I remember that. And I remember being witness to that a couple of times. And I'm thinking, who's this guy coming in and just like, you know, my mum's like fucking fawning over him and, you know, trying to be as nice as pie to him. And, 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 and I thought he was like extremely arrogant, would sit, you know, just sit there. And so that from, there was a lot going on. I went to, I went to all boys schools. I don't I think you probably did as well. I did. Yeah. All the way through, you know, it's, 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 it's crazy. You know, so there was, it was, it was a different country. That's why now like to see the diversity and the openness in, in the country is amazing. Yeah. 
No, and I, I often just remind people, like the younger generation in Ireland, like you don't you know what it was like. Yeah. You, you got it good. Yeah, but the odd thing about that was that I thought that, you know, through what you were doing, the songs that you were singing and the art that the people around us were making, I thought that we were free of that. But we weren't because it still affected us just as much as it affected our fathers and our grandfathers. And I remember the day my first child was born and realizing when they put the child into my arms, I had no fucking idea what I was doing. And that to me was, you know, because we were put into these particular roles, whether we liked it or not. And no matter how much we tried to say no, we tried to resign from that particular role. It still was in us. And, you know, being a father of daughters now and trying to sort of explain these things, the, the sort of, you know, we can use the word damage or the influence that it had on us that despite we want the fact that we wanted to be sort of progressive and open, that we still found it very, very difficult to have those relationships. But moving on for that, Craig, and, and the Ireland of that time, you got out, right? And this is the beginning of you being an Auslander. You went to, yeah. to London and you went and you saw the world. You toured with The Mission. You toured with The House of Love, who were huge bands at the times. The Pixies, who are still a huge band, you know, in the terms of canon of, of indie music. What was that like for you being 19, 20, 21 and being in these circles and being, you know, a musician among these people? Amazing. Like really amazing. I mean, I, I I did a lot of growing up on the road with people like the Mission, you know, who who were like, you know, they were they were road hogs by that time. They were ten years older than us, and and they really took us under under their wing. Um, I just I, I just saw the world really, you know, and it, it like my mind, any kind of prejudices or kind of uh, ideas that had been formed uh, in Ireland or. Um, were completely smashed, you know, when I moved away. I remember, I remember a sense of relief when I get to when I got to London because, as I was saying earlier, we were told there was no prospects, you know. Like I remember, I remember uh, that the, the, the I went to Temple Oak College and I remember that the the principal coming in. I think it was on the week before the, the leaving cert, and he just said, you know, best of luck, lads, in the leaving cert, and you know, a lot of you will be leaving, as we know, like statistically. Uh, and and best of luck with that. And the ones that stay, like hope hope it works out for you. Um, so it was literally like go go away, get you know? the fuck out of here, get out of here. And 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 because there really wasn't much, you know. I mean, it it was a totally totally different time when you when you look back at, at, at Dublin from that. I kind of miss it when I go back. I do miss a little. I miss that that, that side of Ireland a little bit, you know, where it's less organised and it's and it's a bit more kind of uh, relaxed and easy going and. A lot cheaper, um, but you know, I think it's when I went, the, the the light bulb went off. I remember a sense of relief when I got to London, where it was just like, ah, right, you can be who you want. Nobody's going to judge you. I don't, you know, you're not worried about what the neighbours think. Um, there's no influence of your church. There's no, there's no church and state in cahoots, which is which has been our big problem. Really, has or was our big problem for a long, long time. Um, and just just an enormous sense of relief that I could do what you know I was in a place now where I could do what I wanted to do and and, and a lot of the hang ups. But having said that, we carry that stuff with us, don't we? I don't think yeah. I don't think, I don't think you get rid of that the the trauma. You know, I think I think Ireland's I think Ireland's coming out of a traumatic period. You know, like we've had a lot over the last eight hundred years, but the the last I think the last one was the the church's influence and this you know. As it's all coming to light now, what was really going on, you know, and uh, and you know, I remember back then when um, you know I knew people, members of you know my my immediate my my extended family, where you know somebody get pregnant, they had to they had to get out of the country without even the parents knowing, you know, mm. and like Vianant would get the girl out, 
he'd get her on the boat to London and um, and she, she'd have an abortion. And, you know, so we're not that far away from that. So I think... I think the next generation, the generation after us, and and maybe the one like they don't have that. I, I think the trauma is 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 less so for them. And, and great, I'm I'm really happy about that. It actually reminded me of a, of a story that you guys got involved in the Power of Dreams. I wasn't even going to talk to you about this, but it just struck me now. Do you remember Power of Dreams condoms, which was probably <laughs> the greatest merch idea I ever heard? You guys got those made because they were still illegal in Ireland. It was still illegal to buy condoms over the counter in Ireland. And you guys said that you were, no, were you threatened legally with uh, all sorts of things at that time? We were. The, I think it's the, what's it, the help board and the, gov- the government was, it was, it was reaching government level, you know, but I think they eventually understood where we were coming from because he could get married. He was 16 at the time when we, when we were touring. He could get married at 16, but he couldn't buy condoms. And uh, and it's insane, you know, ridiculous, ridiculous law. Um, and it was a good marketing thing, but it was also done with, with the intention of like we gave them out free, like we were we were giving them out at the gigs. It was the only way the kids could get them. There was a lot of demand for them, as you can imagine, and uh, and people because <laughs> our audience was the same age as us, which is what what I love about the past of that. You know, it's 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 great to be the same age as your audience and you're living it at the same time and you're going through the same stuff. And, uh, and we really felt that connection with our, with our Irish fans. And, um, and I still today, I had somebody say, I've got, I've got a picture of the condoms somewhere, the package. Oh, wow. Somebody found, somebody found a packet in his attic and he sent me a, he sent me a screen grab of it. Um, I'll find it and send it to you. Um, but yeah, we were we were we were pushing the envelope. I mean, Connor and Killian as well were pretty progressive managers. You know, you, you, you knew you knew the guys, yeah. Of course, uh, Killian was quite outspoken about stuff, and and Connor was a very smart and educated man who had studied history and, and, and was a lecturer in UCD in history. So he understood the history of Ireland and and and, and the hypocrisy that was going on. So they were they were two guys that I was that, that I was quite influenced by and being around and you know they 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 were quite proactive in that. They, I think I think that might have been even I think it was Connor Killing's idea. They were like, you know what would be great? Uh Key can't fucking you know this he can he's the drummer of the band can't buy condoms in his his, his country, but he can get married. So, um, but we did get a lot of press out of it. In fairness, Aaron moments, you know. Yeah, I can't remember if it was the gig in the SFX or what it was. You know, it's getting a little bit nerdy now going back to those times. But it really was like it was like a happening. It was like a moment in time because this is something that literally we had no idea how to solve this problem at that time. And it was a huge risk. And he took, because we knew so little and especially the boys, the girls would have known an awful lot more than we did. But we hadn't a fucking clue what we were doing at that time. But when when you moved away, Craig, and you were living in London and you had this sense of freedom, there's two things I'd want to, I'd want to, did you go off the rails at that point? Like, is is there such a thing as too much freedom for a young man coming from our background, going to a place like that, going to Japan, going to America? Yeah, a little bit. I mean, I, you know, I suddenly had money, which was like, I never had money before. Um, it was the strangest thing to go to the bank to, to you know, 18 to, to put your card in. And so, you know, I, I don't think there was even cards at that point, but you had to go in with your book. And I had money in the bank for the first time ever. I was living in London. I had a lot of freedom, um, and yeah, I embraced the rave scene in London when I was there. You know, I got really into that because that for me was just it was peace and love. Um, it felt it so inclusive. Um, 
it wasn't even so much about the music, which I, I quite liked some of it, but it was more about this. It was my summer of love, you know, 1991 would have been that summer that I was there for a summer to live in London. Uh, and it was just amazing, you know, it was like people throwing their arms around each other. You know, Irish people are quite reserved uh, until they've had a few drinks. Um, but even then, they're not they're not like kind of back then that they weren't. I think Irish people have got a lot more tactile. Yeah. I would say in the last 20 years, um, but it was very much kind of, you know, when we were, when we were, we were teenagers, you know, you, you kind of stiff upper lip in a way. Yeah. Um, but I, I, I really embraced that. I loved the, I loved the peace and love vibe of it, you know, where there was no, there was no aggro, there was never any fights. It, it wasn't about that. It was about coming together and sharing this communal uh, experience, which was, which was the music. Um, and I, I loved it. I really loved it, you know. I loved, I loved that sense of freedom. But I did do a lot of ecstasy in that period, and uh, you know, got got kind of caught up in it. And um, and yeah, my head went a bit, bit kind of weird for a while. Yeah. And you got to remember, but by, by 1994 the band was finished. 1995 the band split up. Yeah, so I was 24 and the band was done. You know, I was in London. Ian was in London. Um, it just felt like this. We'd been on this roller coaster ride. Uh, the boys were still they, they didn't want to live in London we, we tried to get them to move to London they were like no not, not into it um, so we tried to keep the band going the last album was a bit of a struggle because back then there was no way of sharing uh, files obviously there was no there was no internet and um, there was it was difficult to be in a band in a different country then virtually impossible so we we managed to get the last record done recorded in London and then that was it and um, and that was pretty strange. That that was like when the party was over, really. You know, where I was like twenty five and in London, twenty four. Band band was done. Felt like my career was over, and I couldn't see that I was just twenty four. <laughs> you know, looking back on it now, I'm thinking, fucking hell, I was. You know, I was walking around as if like you know, I was a fucking old old man, a pensioner, a musical pensioner. Yeah, yeah. Oh, it's all over. My career's over. But that was like um, half a lifetime ago, because in the intervening years, you basically sort of survived as a songwriter for 25, 26, 27 years since then. Um, and one of the things that strikes me as well is that, you know, you mentioned Craig Walker and the Cold. Um, all these projects that you've gone through, you've written music for advertisements, for films. You've Like, how did you approach that then when, you know, from twenty, the age of 24 onwards, was it like, fuck, I, I've got to do something to keep that money in the bank? Yeah, kind of. I mean, to be honest, for for two, I, I mean, I'd fallen in love, and 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 I was I was living with with it. I was living the student life then at twenty five because my 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 ex was in university in London, and I and I, I moved to London. She was in college, and I, I did the student life like kind of without going to university at the point at that point. I was twenty four, and for two years, I think from twenty five to twenty six, I just really just did normal stuff. You know, hung out in, in in university bars, went to see gigs. You know, forged relationships that weren't based on just music, and and and, and really lived and, and 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 enjoyed it. You know, really, really enjoyed it. And 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 at that point, I was so sick of music. You know, I was thinking about it before we today. I was thinking about the interview and and our connection. You know, that, that we go we go all the way back. But I, I was thinking that you know sign that record deal at 18 and then you know going from it being the most important thing in my life music and sacred and loving it and to within within fast forward two years i'm sitting in an office um in london 
and we're talking about midweek positions and the importance of a hit single. And it's 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 just it's no wonder that the that, that like artists get totally screwed up, you know, because something that's so important in, in their formation and you know this unique thing to them is suddenly a very commercial thing. And it happens like that, you know, before you know it. I'd, I'd, I'd never heard of midweek positions before I'd, I'd signed. I didn't know anything about it. I knew nothing about chart return shots. You know, none of this stuff. All of this lingo suddenly becomes part of your language very quickly. Um, so, yeah, I, within the space of six years, I had reached a point where I fucking didn't want to make music. I didn't want to hear it. I, I don't think I listened, apart from rave music, going out. I, did, I didn't listen to rock and roll. I was like, I do not want to hear anything. Until, in fairness, um, I think it was the Oasis. For, for hearing uh, Alan McGee invited me down to the New Cross in, in 96, 95, 95, or was it 94? Around that period. And I went down to see um, Oasis playing to, like, you know, it was a, a small venue in, in New Cross. And, and, and it was like, right, that's what it's about again. You know, like a moment of like, right, that, that's the power of like a band or, or music. Um, and that was it. And then, and then I was recharging and I was back into it. And then I started, I st- actually started writing some music for a Japanese artist who was a, a big fan of Power Dreams, um, who had been in a boy band in Japan. And he was like the Robbie Williams of the act who'd gone, he'd left the band and he wanted to make music that he liked and Power Dreams were his favorite band. So I started then, I wrote, wrote a couple of albums with him for, for his records. And, and that got me back on the, on, the, on the motion. And then started a band with um, Ian, who was Ian from Power Dreams. And then Morty from, Morty from the Sultans of Ping, who, who I think you know, you know Morty as well. Yeah, I think sure. he actually lives not too far from here. Morty does, yeah. Yes, he is. He's a neighbour, isn't he? Um, and Mor- Morty was in London at the same time. And the Sultans had split up. And he was at a loose end and, and we, we got a band together. We called the pharmacy and um, we spent the next 18 months touring, writing, putting the thing together. And then we, we signed a deal. We made a good manager, uh, Darren, Darren Robson, who now manages the Villagers mm-hmm. and has done from the start. We had a label called Fantastic Plastic in London. Uh, he's originally from Belfast, but he just moved to London. He took us on. And great manager got us a really great deal with this label in America called Red Ant after about 18 months of, of work. And Red Ant was a, a label set up by a guy called Randy Phillips. Now, Randy Phillips is a name you'll remember from the Michael Jackson thing. When Michael Jackson died, Randy Phillips was the head of, uh, was it Live Nation or Clearview, as it was called at that point? They were the ones that had organized the gigs that were canceled. So he was the guy... On the, on the news saying, you know, very sorry about Michael, you know, whatever. But he, 10 years previous to, or five years previous to Jackson dying, uh, had this label. He had signed Tony Braxton originally, and she was huge. Her, her album sold bucket loads. As a result, he was given his own label by A&M. Um, or, yeah, within A&M, they gave him his own label, subsidiary, called it Red Ant. as international operation. You know, um, so t- he, he took Tony Braxton with him. And the second Tony Braxton album is apparently the, one of the biggest, in the top five flops of all time in US. <laughs> <laughs> Good Lord. 
which meant he spunked all the money that he'd been given on that album. Two, two million or something had gone straight into the promotion and it bombed. Oh, no. And we'd signed to that label. Uh, and on the night that we signed to them, with the in the Hard Rock Cafe in London, we're all sitting around, me, Morty, and the bass player, with, with the boss of the UK branch. And he, he, had, he had one of those old mobile phones at the time, the bricks. That goes off and he goes, lads, got to take this. It's, it's, it's Randy. Off he goes. 20 minutes goes by, no sign of him. We're, we're, we've signed, like, just that night. while toasting each other's future success. And um, he comes back about 40 minutes later, and white as a ghost, and he just goes, lads, you're not going to believe this, but the company's gone into chapter 23, which is receivership. And it's like, fucking hell, you could not make it up. Uh, but Darren being, Darren being the good manager that he was, somehow managed to get three quarters of the advance that, that was due to us. Because yeah. uh, one of the lads in the band had given up a job and stuff to, to go full-time. And, you know, it was all on the table. We were in talks with Butch Vig to produce the album. Uh, we, were, we were planning to be... We were going to record the album in LA. LA. It was all on. Um, and we had a great album ready to go. Um, Obviously, then we didn't know what the story was. It, the chapter twenty-three thing went on for six months. Where is is it? Is it not? Are they going to be able to save it? There was talk of investors coming in, and and basically we, we were in a rehearsal room for six months, rehearsing the album that we weren't sure was ever going to be recorded. And in the end, in the end, it never was. So, uh, but it's funny. But don't. This, this is tying up with the Japanese connection. Fast forward to two years ago, my publisher, BMG at the time here in Germany, said to me, uh, he calls me up and he said, uh, so anyway, that power dream stuff, or the, so the pharmacy stuff, never saw the light day. I think we released one single, the rest of it's just still on my computer. So my publisher, German publisher calls me up and he said, I've just had a call from uh, uh, Blue, is it clear, uh, some, their publisher in Japan. They're putting together an anime Britpop band. Um, and it's going to take a couple of years, but they want original music. So it's going to be kind of like a, it's Oasis and Blur, you know, all together. Uh, if you've got any music that could suit it. And I went, ah, actually, I've got a full album <laughs> of songs recorded at the height of Britpop, influenced by Britpop. And so some of that's being used, is going to be used on this, on this anime uh, Japanese Britpop band that should, it, I think it's starts getting, it gets launched next year. Fantastic. So stuff never, you know, the stuff was good, but it just lay on the computer for years. And uh, it was like, it just goes to show, like the same with journalism, same with anything, you know, good stuff will never get old. That's the thing. If you're in the right place at the right time and, and something happens, you know, and then there's always that idea that you go, okay, oh, I must interview that person. And then all of a sudden you do it and it just becomes a huge thing, you know? And these stories just appear out of nowhere. You know, they walk up to you and they tell themselves, you know? But yeah. you just gotta be, you just got to be available for that stuff. you got to be receptive to it, you know what I mean? Exactly. That's you got to be ready for, for that moment to happen. And I mean, as a songwriter as well, even going back to when you were a teenager, these things were around you. A Little Piece of God was the name of a column in the newspaper by Father Brian Darcy. And it fucking resonated with everybody because everybody would see it in this, you know, otherwise semi-pornographic newspaper and just that idea alone. But if you're not paying attention, Craig, you're not going to put that in your song or on your EP, no. you know? No, not true. 
Yeah, and it's, it's a songwriter's job to be to be receptive to what's going on around them, yeah. and to observe it. And 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 the more the more I do it, like the you know, and I'm, I work with a lot of younger artists. And I'm working with with three or four people at the moment on their debut albums, you know, and uh, I'm helping helping them write it uh, their their albums. And and it, it like the older you get, the more I realize that it's you know the, the most important part of the process for me with 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 the young writer, like the young artist. Is the twenty minutes instead of sitting there and going right? Let's write a song. I spend half an hour talking with them, and yeah. from that talk, you get you get an album's worth of material almost, you know, because the guards down. As soon as you, it's like the thing of like you know, you tell a comic to be funny, and he's not going to be funny, is he? Yeah. You know, you know, be funny. Right? That's it. Doesn't you know? You clam up. Yeah. Um, but it's experience teaches you that it's the stuff that's not. It's not the sitting down to write a song and, and saying, right, let's write a song. It's the other stuff around it, mm. which comes with experience. And, and, and again, being perceptive. And, you know, I think songwriters are like receivers. Uh, I think the songs, you, you hear people talk about it all the time, you know, like people like Lee Mavers would talk about the mysticism of, of, of the songwriter, you know, being, a, you know, the, the music is there and we, we just have this ability to channel it somehow. Because sometimes you write, sometimes I've written songs that I really don't know where they've come from. It just literally came out in one go. Um, and it's happened to me, it's happened to me on a few occasions where it literally wrote itself. Yeah. I was I was like a radio receiver that was just there to take this thing that was supposed to exist or, or maybe existed already yeah. in the ether. Well, you're just like a, a conduit, like this thing, this bolt of lightning strikes. I was when I was on the plane back from Tokyo there uh, on Sunday. I got to see Kelly Harrington win the gold medal for Ireland, and it was a hugely emotional thing for me because, like you know, my relationship with my father is built on sport, you know. And I was flying back, and I'd done all this of the straight reporting for the news agency that I work for, you know. And there's no there's no real room for color or for emotion and those things. And I was sitting on the plane about an hour and a half out of Warsaw, and it struck me what I wanted to write in exactly the same way as you're saying. And I probably wrote in twenty minutes, and I put it out on Substack just as a private thing and it fucking took off to the point where Kelly's brother was in touch saying it was mad and it is that thing like sometimes it is magic it is alchemy sometimes it's just you know I was talking to a bunch of journalists about interviewing and they said you know what, what do you do when you're interviewing people I said I ask people who they are and they tell me and it, sometimes yeah. it can be that simple with a song yeah. that, you know, it'll come to you. The feeling will come to you and you can just flesh it out very, very quickly. Now, I'm sure you've had other times where you're banging your fucking head off the computer for days on end. You know, but, but I think that, I think, again, this experience that like, you know, I would take like as, as a young writer, if things it's I can see how people get into blocks because and, and looking back at myself, I'd have periods of block because uh, you sit down, something doesn't come. You do it the next day, nothing comes, and by the third day, you're you're panicking. You're like, Fuck, I can't do this anymore. You know, it's gone. Uh, but it's blo you're blocking yourself. You're you're in the way. You know, you're in your own way, basically. Yeah. Um, and as you were describing that thing, it just you know when something when it's there, it's it's just such a pleasure, isn't it? It's just like poof, comes out like in 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 one in one go. Um, but these days, I like. I think it was Bono who said, you know, you've got to, if you if you're blocked, write about being blocked. Yeah, you know, if you've got no, nothing to say, write about having nothing to say. Mm. And I read that, and I think it was in a book he did with Salman Rushdie, and 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 that always stuck with me. And it was the first time I, I'd heard somebody say that, and 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 that really resonated with me. It was like, actually, yeah, I see, I see what he means there, you know. Uh, yeah. And other people like Stephen King, um, I, I, you know, he he wrote a great book on on writing. Yeah. Um, 
and again he just said you know you just have to keep writing if it's if it's if what you're writing is shit it's shit just throw it in the bin um and and it's the same same for me i mean i i tend to you know everything you write's not going to be great some of it will be some of it you won't even use in the context of what you've written it as but you might use it two years later or it might be a line there might be a line and that will work with something later mm. um but the thing is just not the panic and, I, and, 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 and experience teaches you not to because it, you know that you're going to write another song. Mm. It might not be today, it might not be tomorrow, but you know that, it, you know, you know you can do it. Um, the thing we're writing, is, again, it, it's such a fr fragile kind of thing, isn't it? It's, it's the unexplainable, you know. You can't really explain where your writing comes from, you know. You can't, it's impossible to to define that. Where where the or for, as a, as as a journalist as well, you know, where where the ability to 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 put something cohesive together that that that's, that that works is, you know, it's 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 unexplainable. Uh, and music, it's those, yeah. it was the same thing. It's, it's this process of of ideas. You know, what is it that interests me? What what makes a story interesting? You know, the difference between dog bites man and man bites dog. But mm -hmm. sometimes you have it. But like one of the things, one of the abilities that I have with like the Olympics is I'll go. I hate being stuck in a press center, that kind of thing. I want to walk. I want to go out. I want to meet people. And as yeah. soon as I do that, these things will turn up. These stories will come and find me to tell them, you know? But when you're saying about writing about things that you know, the name of the new al album by Power of Dreams is Auslander. I may not be pronouncing that right in German, but it's I about this. I love, I love hearing people's pronunciation of it. <laughs> it brings <laughs> out the musical ear tunes in, you know? But one of the things that you have never, you know, you've always been a great, you've had a great grow for Ireland, a great love for Ireland, but it, it just seems that you can't really bring yourself to live there. There's something about it, you know, so you've lived everywhere else. What's it like, you know, as you know, I've lived outside the country now for many years as well. This time, 30 years ago, when you were in London, I was living in Greece, you know, uh, how does that affect you mentally? Do you feel let down by Ireland? Do you feel let down by yourself? Would you like to live in Ireland again? Um, before I came here six years ago, I was, I lived in Ireland for eight years um, mm. and I met my wife there and um, I went back, I reconnected after living in London for 15 years. I, 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 and that was, you know, that was quite amazing like to, to go back. It, it, I was really glad I did it because I had lost, I think I'd lost touch with my Irishness a bit before going back, you know, um, you know what it's like. You, when you first move away, you're back every six months, you know, and then and then life gets in the way, and then suddenly you're, you know, you've got more going on where you live, and 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 and, and then parents die or whatever, and the families there's less family there to go back and see, and particularly when when my mum died, um, so I was I was really glad I went back. I reconnected with Ireland in a in a very positive way. It was I was living in the city, in the city centre, which I'd never really done. I was living right in the middle of Drury Street, actually, and looked out and found a great, great apartment that my, my, my now wife had at the time. She was renting. She had a really good deal there. And, and I loved it. It was like right in the centre of town. I really got a feel for the city. It was a, a city in transition. Uh, it was a country in transition. Um, it, it suddenly felt a lot more colourful, you know, as a place. Um, people were far more... Um, in tune, it felt with what was going on in the world, uh, and I really, I really got off a lot on the younger generation. You know, they were kind of, um, I liked, I liked their attitude. You know, and in a lot of ways, they didn't have the same hang-ups that we had. Mm. Uh, it, it seemed, or seems, they had ambitions. Um, they, 
they would, you know, they 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 felt they could do anything, and 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 it was really 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 lovely to see that, you know, and you know my my younger siblings are included in that as well. They have this kind of the the hangups that we had seemed to have disappeared a little bit. Uh, the church was having far less of an influence. Uh, you know, I I think at that point Ireland was the number one uh, in Western Europe. I think it was at the highest rate of um, atheists in in Europe. I think it still does. Or definitely the most, yeah, makes a lot um, of sense. <laughs> totally. Well, you know that I loved it, and I and 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 I really fell in love with Ireland again. Being there, it was it was really great. Um, but then the opportunity came to to sign to a publisher in Germany, and you know they said BMG, the German company, and they said you know uh, you're going to be flying back and forward all the time, so you may as well you know move to move to Germany if you can it would make sense um, so they facilitated the move to Berlin I, I'd always loved Berlin my wife loved it as well we, we, we came and checked it out I played here over the years it was, I've always been fascinated with, with the city with the history of it musically and you know and, and all the other stuff that goes with it um, so it felt they made the the company made the, the move really easy You know, they think we quite similar in the the red tape that you've got you've got in countries, um, and we were sad to leave, but we were we were genuinely sad to leave that time. Um, you know, because we we both really really loved Dublin's a great city. You know, it's it's a very man it's it's a it's an easy city to get around, isn't it? And when you when you when you haven't lived there for a long time and then you come back, you you see the really good sides of it more so than the the negative things when you when you live permanently. Um, but now I, I have a great, great love for Ireland, a great love for the Irish people. I think they're, they're an amazing uh, race of people um, who are, you know, I think a lot more progressive than people give them credit for, you know, and um, and I think a lot more open. And, and, I, and I think the, the countries, you know, politically, it's always fucking Fianna Gael or Fianna Fáil, the same old bullshit. But I think the people... Are, are really what made the country, you know, and and, and it's testament to the people that because the climate's appalling, um, and yeah, you've got Brazilians who stay there because they love the people, you know, and um, and, and that's it, isn't it? You know, and you you don't stay there for the weather, do you? You're not going to yeah. stay in the weather. Yes, yeah, my wife said to me, and my my wife's American, and and, and she said that uh, you know people do not, you know, the pe people stay because they they're not worried about the weather. They're, they're there for a feeling and and she you know my, my, my wife Shannon she's she's a big advocate and always has been from the point from the moment I met her of, of Ireland and, and, and Irish things and and Irish culture and and Irish uh, the Irish temperament as well you know she you know as somebody once described it to me an American that I met in um, when I was living back home seven eight years ago she said you know Ireland is it's a soft country You've got soft rain. The people talk softly, um, and people treat each other in a very soft way. And that's 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 it, isn't it? You know, and, and it's 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 a great country. Yeah. We have a lot to be proud of. Indeed. One last question, Craig. Um, where does it go from here? I know you have some shows planned around St Patrick's Day in Ireland and in the UK. Um, is, is this the last Power of Dreams album? Is it the first of many? Where does your career take you? And is it going to be in Germany? Is it going to be in Ireland? You know, can you see yourself moving back to Japan or London or wherever? Japan would be nice. Japan definitely be nice. Um, 
I, I, I don't know. I mean, it, I love the new album. I'm really proud of it. You know, I, 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 I'm really, as I said at the beginning, like, you know, if you told me two years ago that we'd be sitting here talking about a pair of dreams album, I'd have said you're insane. Mm. You know, I, I could imagine it being like the cold or, or, or other projects. I didn't expect it. It's kind of just come out of nowhere. And it, and it feels like a gift almost this album that, you know, I'm as much surprised as anyone else that we've got it. Um, I wouldn't rule out another record. I think we've got, you know, the, I've got a lot of songs that, that could we could probably go in and do another two albums straight away um, if we if we if we could arrange it. Um, so I wouldn't say the door is closed on it completely. Um, I think I think we've all really enjoyed this process. Uh, it's been a pleasure to work with Ian and Keith again, um, and also the two guys that have come in have done an amazing job. You know producing Eric did a fantastic job felt like he immediately felt like a member of the band uh, he understood the history you know he went did his homework he understood the importance of, of, of the band's history to to people back home and and, and, and in other places um, but you know if we if we could make an album as good as Outlander again I think we'd probably do one I wouldn't I wouldn't rule it out uh, I might think, think differently later but the, the, for now I mean we've got we're going to release a second version of the album, which a deluxe version of the album, uh, because we didn't put all the songs that we'd recorded on the album. We had uh, we'd sixteen songs, and sixteen songs is a double album, and just didn't think the world needed a double album at this point. <laughs> <laughs> um, because if they didn't like, you know, if they didn't like a single album, they were not definitely not going to like a double album. So we've got these really good songs in reserve that were good enough to make the album, but it just didn't fit. So we're going to bring that out uh, for Christmas. And then I've got I've got a lot of cold stuff coming up. We've got we've got an album that's almost finished. Um, we're about three quarters way through that. We're at the mixing stage now. So we've got singles coming out, and that, and that that album, the debut album, comes out next February, which I'm really excited about. I think it's a really, as a songwriter, it's it you know like with the pod thing. I purposely didn't want to make a Radiohead departure kind of bullshit thing, you know, where yeah. suddenly the band doesn't sound anything like anybody remembered because uh, there was no call for it. And I didn't want to make an album like that. And you know, it was important that we recognize, we acknowledged our past with a, with a modern, you know, a modern sound record. Um, so I think, I think still think there's a lot to be said in, in Power Dreams, you know, like it, it, it seems, We've had that massive gap of 26 years uh, where most bands by that, you know, during that period would have released, they'd stayed together like 10, 15 albums. And, you know, people like Pearl Jam have continued going when we, when we quit and they've, they've a bunch of records. Uh, but for us, it's the, it feels like a new band in, in a way, mm. you know, we've been doing, we've been jumping on, on, on Zoom sessions and, and catching up and and it really feels new you know because we've got the new new guys in the band uh, Ali Ali who I consider a member of the band at the moment because he he brought so much um and obviously Eric um and they're very inspiring it, it's very inspiring to work with people like that you know like in in the context of what I love about making Power Dreams record now is that I can be absolutely shamelessly 90s about the sound the style because nobody can say, oh, it's funny, you, you know, like the killers will go, we're making an 80s inspired album. But, you know, they weren't around in the 80s. So it's it, it's a homage. Whereas us doing it, I can be totally shameless. You, you, were, you were there, man. 
<laughs> I was there. 90s arrangements, you know, like all the classics. And the album has that, you know, has the classic, you know. The middle eight is a dying thing in the songwriting, as, you, as you're probably aware. Like in modern pop music, it doesn't really exist. It's like verse, chorus, verse, chorus, verse, chorus, or, you know, three separate parts that are like totally disparate. Like you got a rap, you got, you know, songwriting has changed. Um, so it's my chance to, to, to really go back and do that, which is fun. It's really fun. I remember like, what was his name? Ryan Adams did a, didn't he do an 80s inspired album at one point? Something like that, yeah. I don't think I ever heard that album, but I knew he was doing it, yeah. Yeah, but it sounded like U2, and he was obviously a big U2 fan, and he'd made an album that sounded like a homage, basically. Uh, and he wasn't around in the 80s. So I, I found it difficult to take it that, ser that seriously. Whereas, like, I love 90s music. I'm still a fan of it. I've, I've gone back. I've ended up listening to a lot of of 90s music as a result of Down the Power of Dreams. And mm. what a good time for music, you know? It didn't seem it at the time, but, you know, when you look back, like, all the way through the 90s, it was really good stuff, you know? You'd like groundbreaking stuff mm. from Nirvana, Primal Scream, like Bloody Valentine, you know, the list goes on and on. Oasis then, the whole the whole Britpop thing. So it was a good period for music. And uh, so it's, it's, it's fun making 90s music for me. You know, I, I enjoy it. Um, so I wouldn't close the door on doing another album, for sure. It's too Long, much fun. Exactly. Long may it continue. Craig, thanks so much for talking to me. Thanks, Philip.